All right. Well, uh, I'm very glad to welcome Dr. Tamara Hintz. Hintz? Hintz? Hintz. Did I get it right? Yeah, got it. Yes. Yeah. We, we ran through that like three different times before <laughs> the audio started recording, and I'm still struggling. Um, she is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and an assistant prof at the College of Medicine at the U of S. Um, and she's been super, super gracious to come join us today and talk to us about youth and the effects of COVID on them and her experiences in advocacy and lots of other stuff. So thank you for joining us, Tamara. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun. I'm super excited. Um, so my first question to you is you've been working as a child psychiatrist and youth psychiatrist all through this pandemic. What's that experience been like? What have you seen? What have you experienced? Yeah, so I think like most offices, uh, very early on in the pandemic, there was a couple weeks where we all panicked and lots of people canceled their appointments and we were scrambling to figure out how to go virtual. Um, but surprisingly, um, it didn't actually take very long for things to sort of just start running fairly normally again. Um, you know, we're doing a mix of virtual and in-person appointments, which I actually think is a really patient-centered approach. It's great for some families who, um, don't have to travel or, you know, take a half day off work to, to come. Um, so do you find that that's increased accessibility for folks having that hybrid model available? Yeah, yeah. And I think now that people have a taste of it, like, I don't think it'll ever go away. I think the, the demand is going to be super high. Um, do you find do you find that it changes um, sort of the nature of the interaction with the patient a little bit? Like, do you find it's harder to make a connection? Or do you think it depends a little bit more case to case? I think both. Um, I, I've done a few um, initial assessments virtually. And um, to be honest, I don't find that super satisfying. I think for the first time I, I meet a kid, it's really nice to just nothing replaces that in person um, kind of direct connection. Um, so it's I, I find it more useful in a follow up scenario where I already know the patient, the patient already knows me. Um, but, but even then sometimes like some kids never want to step foot back in my office. They're like, this is great. Just call <laughs> me or let's do this video thing. Other kids absolutely hate it. They insist on coming in. Um, so it, it's nice to be able to offer both. It's great for blended families. Um, you know, like oh, we yeah. can do sort of like a big zoom meeting where like dad and stepmom are joining from this camera and mom is at her office on, on this video. That's, that's funny. I've had a very similar experience as a teacher yeah. with uh, parent-teacher conferences. It's yeah. way easier to bring in big families and to bring in, you know, other people who are involved in their care and stuff into those meetings with the advent of Zoom. Yeah. And we live in Saskatchewan and, you know, like people travel from far different distances and, and the weather is unpredictable. And so it's actually crazy to think about a time pre-pandemic when we didn't have this kind of technology where people would cancel their appointments because it snowed, you know, like this. Oh, yeah. It's nice that that kind of stuff doesn't really have to happen anymore because we can just sort of hop on a phone call or a computer and do the appointment that way if, if needed. So, yeah, I think it's, th that's been a, a, a plus of the pandemic. Obviously, there's been other parts of work that have to be in person and always will be, you know, emergency mm -hmm. work and in hospital work. Um, so now we wear masks and we didn't used to do that, but otherwise it's pretty similar. 
So how has the nature of the work changed over the course of the pandemic? And what I mean by that is like, have you seen different types of um, needs and challenges presenting themselves? Or has it been sort of what you saw before, but amplified? Or is it kind of both again? Yeah, again, I would say a, a bit of both. I think it's a very psychiatrist answer to always be really wishy-washy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, things that we have seen increase, I would say the most dramatic one has been eating disorders, um, sadly enough. Um, we're seeing more cases of illnesses like anorexia um, coming into hospital um, in younger kids, presenting much later. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 hard to know for sure. There's lots of research going into it. Um, I think uh, even pre-pandemic, we we knew that um, a subjective feeling of a loss of control often played a role in eating disorders. You know, um, anorexia is is very much an illness of of control and a need to be in control of exactly sort of what you're eating and how you're eating it and and. Um, and, and your body. And so I think the experience for a lot of kids and a lot of people in general during the pandemic was this extreme version of a loss of control. So um, that's my kind of leading theory on, on why we've seen that increase um, is, is a way to kind of bring some control back in. I think relatedly a loss of routine, which a lot of us have also seen. I think is is related. Um, I used to think as a a young adult and a kid, you know, routine was sort of a, a dirty word. It felt very boring and uncool. But uh, the older I get and the longer I get in this job, the more I realize and appreciate. Like, I, I really respect routine. It's it's so important. Yeah, it's very calming to our nervous system to sort of know what's coming next in our in our day. Um, and the pandemic has really sort of just like pulled that rug from out of us um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even worse, I think, when you get into the high school age groups and there's more. Um, more mixing and more risks of outbreak. And so I have high school age patients who are, yeah, you know, constantly worried about school moving virtually and having very little notice about that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it's a really anxiety provoking time. So I think we've seen, you know, increases in anxiety and, and then subsequently increases in eating disorders. I think there's been probably increases in every aspect of anxiety, you know, however anxiety uh, presents itself. Um, and, uh, and sometimes in opposing ways, you know, we see kids who have um, become fearful of, of going out and getting sick um, or, you know, fearful of being separated from parents or other people that they've been spending more time with. Um, 
yeah i mean do you think that the same sort of like i think about how deep divides have formed along a lot of communities of adults where you've got groups who are very you know anti covid precautions anti all that stuff and some people are very focused on that mm -hmm. has that same divide broken out in uh groups of kids as well or are they still sort of ambivalent about the whole thing I always think kids are much more reasonable than adults on most topics. Um, so I don't think there's been as much polarization as, as we've seen in adults. Um, I think for the most part, I mean, there's all, always going to be exceptions, but for the most part, I think kids take their cues from their adults. And so um, if you've got an adult who is really against masking, that child is not going to like wearing a mask and, you know, whatever, um, you know, pick whatever sort of, pandemic topic, I think it's, it's the same that, um, you know, wh whether we are aware of it or not, you know, we're really sort of modeling um, and informing the opinions that the kids in our lives form about, about these topics. So I think that's primarily where it's coming from. I, I that I couldn't agree more. And yeah. it's my experience in the classroom too. They they base so much on how you act rather than what you say or what you tell them to do. It's what they see you doing. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Um, so on that same note, how can like the parents of these kids who may be listening to this support their kids as they're going through all of this stuff? I think um, be aware of what um, what your kids are kind of exposed to. And I don't mean in terms of like viral risk, I mean, in terms of information and, and chatter, you know, are, are they watching a lot of news? Are they on social media? Um, what kind of information is being shared about the pandemic within their, within their social circles? So again, I think, pandemic parenting advice is, is not really that much different from regular parenting advice. You know, it's kind of um, have those open lines of communication, be curious about your kids, you know, listen to, to what they've been hearing about, you know, what their fears are. Um, be really mindful of your own, I guess, um, fears or anxieties or biases, which we all have. And, and um, you know, so that we can be aware of, of what we're, transmitting to our, our kids. Um, you know, I, I think there are ways to sort of make these concepts approachable and, um, and not scary for, for our kids. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important, you know, to make this information developmentally appropriate, um, to make sure you're not just constantly talking about the pandemic, to sort of try to, um, try to have some normalcy in your life, have some routine in your life, you know, that, that word again, mm -hmm. um, and focus on the things kind of within our control. Cause I think that's a really, another really important piece of, um, combating that uncertainty or that anxiety is okay. There's lots that's not within our control, but what can we control? Mm -hmm. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you say, Talk about it in a way that is development, developmentally appropriate. How could 
um, just like a normal person out on the street, get a gauge of what would be developmentally appropriate for their kid? Where would be a good place to start on that question? Because I think it's a tough question that we all struggle with a little bit. When kids ask you a question, it's like, I don't know how much to give them. Yeah, I think every parent is um, always going to be the expert in, in their their own child. And so I think, um, you know, listen to the kinds of words and terms they're using. Um, even as a physician, I try to match those terms. So, you know, maybe germ is more, they can wrap their head around that more than virus, for instance. Um, in our house, um, you know, my kids are, are six and eight now. Um, when talk of, of social and physical distancing kind of, you know, first started, um, my husband happens to be exactly six feet tall. So we like laid him on the ground, like literally, and we had one kid at his feet and one kid at his head. And we said, this is six feet apart. This is how far apart people want you to stand in a pandemic. And like seeing a grown up lying on the floor is always hilarious. Like they, um, the kids thought that was great. Um, so, um, you know, not that I have all the answers in my own parenting, but I thought that was one example of a really successful, <laughs> Yeah, stay exactly one dad away. One from dad away. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's our new unit of measurement in the house. <laughs> um, is there a way that um, parents can? What? What? My, I think what I'm trying to ask is, what's the best way that parents can create a climate in their house where their kids feel ready to ask questions or able to ask questions about this sort of stuff? Um, where the kids feel sort of safe to ask those questions. Are there, are there some tips that you could offer or advice that you could offer for that? Yeah, I, I would hope that parents and families are already kind of um, setting up, um, you know, rituals or routines that invite that kind of um, reflection upon, you know, I mean, even just like the, what happened at school today, um, kind of open-ended questions um, will often sort of lead that way. Um, sometimes even, um, again, sort of being that role model and talking about your day and this is what happened will um, be a bit of a, a jumping off point for kids to talk about it. So it's always a bit of a balancing act. You know, you want to create... Um, or, you know, open up conversations um, to invite those kinds of questions or concerns without constantly bringing it up, you know? Like, I mean, if it's not necessarily always front of mind for your, your child, then don't make it front of mind for them. Mm -hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, speaking of keeping things front of mind, um, kids are spending a ton of time on social media, especially during this, this pandemic. Do you have any, as, as a psychiatrist, what are your experiences with that as, you know, seeing kids dealing with it and what are your, you know, concerns? Are there benefits? How do you feel about it to start? with? Oh, yeah, it's uh, from a, from a workplace point of view, social media is probably like one of the top three beans of my existence. Um, you know, there's obviously lots of benefits and upsides to social media for kids. But, um, you know, in my line of work, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm biased to only see the negative outcomes of that, you know, there's, mm -hmm. 
yeah, I, I, it's just such a hard and weird time to be a kid. You know, um, I, I'm so glad that every dumb thing I did or, you know, like style I wore was not kind of captured forever on. Um, I know nobody will ever see my Zubaz phase and it breaks my heart. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, like it's, there's this permanency to the internet that, um, kids and, and to be honest, I think even like most adults, like can't wrap their heads around it. And it just mm -hmm. feels, um, like we're putting kids in a really unfair position to sort of give them open access to all of this technology without sort of the... Mm -hmm the frontal lobe and the the other skills to to know how to to navigate that so um so are there yeah. ways that parents can sort of help mitigate that or or ways that teenagers or kids themselves can help mitigate that yeah i i would say um certainly um doing your best to to delay Kind of delving into social media as much as you can you know and all of these apps have i think age 13 is sort of like the minimum suggested age requirement lots of kids are obviously getting in there way earlier um but it's tough right we're also in a pandemic and a lot of our other ways of socializing and connecting have been taken away from us so so i also see the draw to it i see those those benefits as well i think Again, it's about, um, you know, good communication within families, teaching kids about, um, you know, internet and social media literacy. Mm -hmm. um, again, these are, I think, lessons that lots of adults could also learn, but... Um, 100%. <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing I talk about with patients um, with, with programs like Instagram is you know, you are watching everybody else's highlight reel and comparing it to your behind the scenes footage. Um, and that's just not a, a fair comparison, you know, like, it's just such an artificial world that that we put out there. So um, yeah, you know, I think, do you think that that sort of that constructed thing is starting to wear thin for them because like now they're getting it seems like snapchat is humongous now and TikTok, and they're just way less artificial platforms do you think it's sort of uh, uh them I, I don't know if the word is rebelling but i don't know if i can think of a better one like rebelling against that yeah that's that's a good question um that's certainly possible i think there's um when when trends shift like that, I think they just sort of bring new types of issues or concerns as opposed to just um, mm -hmm. having other ones go away. Um, mm -hmm. And everything is a double-edged sword, right? Like I know there's lots of um, mental health awareness and advocacy on TikTok, depending on kind of what comes on your For You page. And and the, the downside of that is, um, you know, and, and it's been reported in the media too, that kids are presenting with like new onset tick disorders, for example, because they learned about ticks and Tourette's on TikTok. Um, Do and, you uh, find yeah. that that's becoming prevalent? Like people self-diagnosing themselves on TikTok and coming yeah. into the office and saying like, I think I have condition X. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, that information has always been there on the internet and, and there's always a certain 
subset of people who are seeking out that meaning or that label that comes with the diagnosis. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, apps like TikTok are just making that like so much easier and sort of like really in your face. Yeah, it really does just kind of bombard you with it, especially because like it it creates pockets of people. And if you wind up in one of those pockets, it really does reinforce those points of view for sure. Um, you are quite active on social media, especially on uh, Saskatchewan Twitter. Um, it is, it's a complicated place. Um, <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, what drew you to Twitter initially and sort of what draws you still to spend time on there? Oh God, that's a great question. Hey, I mean like the, <laughs> on paper. What, I, I ask myself some days it? too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember. Um, it actually might have been um, like one or two mayoral races back in Saskatoon where I kind of like got onto Twitter. I'm always a bit of a, I've been a bit of a, you know, political nerd for, for a while. And, and that's sort of the, the best kind of social media platform to, to read that kind of information. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly during the pandemic, I became much more active on, on Twitter. I think um, it's, you know, these are the, this is the double-edged sort of social media, you know, I just finished trashing it so hard, but um, there's benefits too. It's, it's, um, you know, I think I was drawn to, um, to, to things like Twitter um, during the pandemic, not initially to provide information, but to, to get information, you know, that um, physicians and, you know, all, all healthcare workers, this was like new and scary. And so you could learn from, you know, different places where it was kind of hitting before it came to us. So, you know, there was Mm -hmm. lots of information coming from Italy and then from New York. Um, So I think some of my early pandemic related social media was much more as a consumer of that information. It it still is. I I, I still, there's still lots of people on on Twitter that I I follow and I I really respect their, Mm -hmm. um, you know, their analysis of things. But then I think, yeah, it gradually morphed into sort of um, more, you know, first receiving that information and then trying to share it with other people. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm nowhere near Steve Boots famous on TikTok. Um, <laughs> that's like a whole oh, whole other level of, of fame. We're, we're but... editing this bit out. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but I mean, I guess people. Um, people are, are responding to it, you know, um, the, the, I guess the audience of that has, um, it's, it's resonated with, with people, people are, are also hungry for their own kind of sources of what they consider to be reliable information. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I've, on that note, um, a lot of people, I think myself included, actually, when I initially came to Twitter, it was to follow doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, sort of healthcare worker Twitter has become quite active in a lot of places. Um, first off, was it always that active? Or is this a thing where like healthcare workers all around just very much mobilized to Twitter during this pandemic to spread information? 
Yeah, med Twitter has always been a thing. Um, I think where healthcare workers come to share funny anecdotes or you know nerdy medical terminology jokes that no one else is going to appreciate or to <laughs> vent into the void. So I think it's always it's certainly always been there. But um, yeah, I mean it really obviously has has taken off during the pandemic. Do you think that it's going to sort of become an important part of health communication going forward now that so many people have sort of, um, I don't want to say intruded on because I think they're welcome, but sort of like joined in on um, med Twitter. Just because like there are a lot of people following doctors now and there's a lot of people who are very actively curious about what's going on in healthcare. Do you think that's going to stick? Do you think that becomes an important part of your guys's work? I think it will be. I think it's going to be sort of hard to put that genie back in in the bottle. I mean, it'll be interesting to see um, all of these people who've been primarily tweeting about COVID. You know how how that will kind of pivot to to other topics. But um, I think what this has, you know, advocacy has always been a really important pillar in, in medicine. Um, you know, the, the Royal College of Physicians um, and Surgeons of Canada uh, list out, oh, I should know this offhand, five or six pillars of, um, you know, what they consider all of the ingredients that make up a, a physician, you know, scholar mm-hmm. and communicator and, you know, all of these, um, all of these areas. And an advocate has always been one of them. And so um, even in med school, you know, we were taught about the importance of physician advocacy, but I think pre-pandemic, it felt um, kind of more theoretical uh, for a lot of people, or that's not the right word, but maybe more on a much more kind of individual level, you know, where we're always, mm-hmm. we've been used to advocating for our patients on a one, one-on-one platform. And, you know, my, my patient needs this form filled out to access this benefit, or I'm going to advocate so that they can get this medication paid for, or, you know, so, so we've always done that kind of advocacy, but I think what the pandemic has shown is it's just really exploded advocacy onto this sort of really big platform where mm-hmm. the, the population sort of becomes your patient. Um, and so advocacy is, is just much wider spread than it used to be. Do you think that translates into positive change in the medical field and in just maybe even the way that Canada and everyone thinks about healthcare? Um, again, it, it probably depends on who you talk to. I'm, I can think of a few people on Twitter who uh, would think that's not a great, um, great move. Um, but I, I do think, um, I think overall it is positive. You know, I think... Um, for, for the most part, I think the general population has uh, a greater awareness and respect of scientists and, and science and, um, and medicine. Um, you know, I, I think that can be, that can be really positive. Again, I think there are mm-hmm. some drawbacks, you know, like information has just been coming out at warp speed. And so you get all of these, what are called preprints, which are basically just, you know, um, journal articles and waiting that have not been kind of scrutinized or um, reviewed by um, by other doctors or, or scientists. And so, um, you know, there's certainly downsides to information becoming immediately accessible 
all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we always have the tools um, as sort of just regular consumers of information to be able to kind of critically appraise all of that information. So I think that the the source of you know who you're who you're listening to and and um, their reliability becomes really important. Do you think that part of that is just some folks, um, even within the medical field, just find, having a tendency to sensationalize, or do you think it's coming from the media? Where do you think that, or is it just sort of all over the place? Yeah, I think it's again a bit of both. Like, um, I think there is. Um, a, a tendency that's really important to be aware of and to avoid to to just amplify fear all the time. You know, I think there's lots of legitimate things to be aware and, and fearful of that we don't need to kind of amplify every little thing. And, um, you know, that that's certainly a, a trap. I think that's pretty easy to fall into on on social media when you're trying to share information or, or amplify um, new information. And, and I think media also can easily fall into that trap. You know, first of all, um, journalists are also not um, scientists or have not been trained to critically appraise this new information. So um, I don't think you can really blame them for disseminating information mm -hmm. that may have been a bit dodgy in terms of how that, you know, the methods of, of that particular study. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definite risks there. Mm -hmm. um, have you personally, with, with the advocacy that you've done on Twitter, I know that a lot of folks are sometimes hesitant to go public with their opinions out of fear of some sort of you know, either public blowback or friction or however you want to describe it. Have you experienced much of that? I have. Um, I think um, anybody who has any size of platform, not that mine is huge or anything, but, um, you know, you're always going to get, um, you know, some critique or, or blowback. But I would actually say, uh, for the most part, my experience has been quite positive, which I'm, you know, I mean, that could change at any time, I guess. But so far, I feel lucky that, that um, the information seems to be for the most part, well received, and, and, and people are appreciative of it. Um, I actually was sort of reflecting on, you know, how did a child psychiatrist kind of end up in this role in the pandemic? And I was talking about that with some colleagues. And, you know, um, what I kind of concluded or, or realized is that um, psychiatrists are, are, are maybe like really well positioned to sort of be this communicator or translator of health information. You know, um, some people don't know that psychiatrists go through all of the same med school and medical school rotations that any other specialist goes through. You know, I had to mm -hmm. assist in surgeries and, and, you know, help deliver babies just you know, just like a, I don't know, like a kidney doctor might. Mm -hmm. um, and so having that background um, in medicine and science, you know, can kind of help me tease apart and, and kind of work through some of, you know, this deluge of, of information. Um, but I think because of the nature of my work and training, um, you know, I think it also sort of helps to position 
me to maybe communicate that in ways that are um, clear, hopefully, and, and maybe more understandable than someone mm -hmm. in a different field. So I, I don't know, that was my I think it makes a lot of sense, though, right? Like you guys, as as a psychiatrist, you need to have all the science skills, but you need to be a communicator, too. Well, on to a different topic Then I wanted to ask you about your research project that you have underway. Could you tell the audience about it? Yeah, I, I feel very lucky that I sort of got swept up into this project. I'm I'm not an academic um, or a researcher. Um, really, I don't have a lot of experience in those fields. I'm I'm a clinician. My, my work is clinical and with patients. Um, but it was actually through a, a Twitter connection, of all things. Um, someone said, you know, this, um, you know, um, the, these folks are wanting to um, apply for, for some funding to, to look at um, mental health um, in Saskatchewan kids during the pandemic. Um, and, and they could really benefit from someone you know looking at that with more of a clinical lens um would you be interested in um and it, this is how it you know they always kind of hook you in with with one you know zoom conversation <laughs> oh, they always bait the trap yeah right? yeah and so we started <laughs> off that way um it's uh dr nazim muhajarian is um my uh my co-lead he's a he's a humble and brilliant man, um, professor in the, um, you know, in community health and epidemiology. Um, so, so he's a, um, he's an academic machine, you know, he, he's uh, very busy. I don't know how he has the time to, to do as much as he does. Um, but uh, yeah, I said, I, I, you know, this is an interesting topic. I think it's, I think it's important. Um, what actually got me kind of hooked was the, um, I guess the the idea that um, policymakers and, and politicians really, um, you know, numbers and, and data is sort of the the language they speak. That's kind of what what convinces them that something um, there, there's a need there or something needs to be funded. And so, um, again, sort of drawing from that advocate role, you know, being able to sort of put some hard numbers, I guess, on, on maybe what kids in this province have been going through um, and, and leveraging that um, to, to get more support for them was, um, was sort of my main motivator to, to become involved. And um, I think it just really speaks to the, the, the talents and the passion of this team that I, I was welcomed into. You know, we, we were successful in that first grant. You know, we did a first arm of that study um, that, mm -hmm. that led out into a, a second offshoot. And then, um, you know, now we've been given uh, CIHR funding to, to do kind of a, a follow-up study on it. So I really feel like this is imposter syndrome at, at the biggest degree, you know, I, um, to be a, a clinician now with a CIHR grant is, um, I'm not sure like how I got here, but um, yeah, it's I mean, been great. Well, first off, congratulations. Thank you. Um, what sort of questions specifically are you hoping to find the answers to in this process? So um, the, the first round um, was um, interviewing hundreds of um, 
uh, Saskatchewan kids and and their parent or caregiver. So it was kind of a unique study where we had these dyads of of uh, parents and kids, um, and um, you know we asked them about um, so we asked about point prevalence of um, you know certain mental health diagnoses so you know things like depression and anxiety um which is a bit hard to actually i think interpret in a useful way you know in a two-year-long pandemic when you're gathering information over many months where the local situation is rapidly changing it's not super useful actually to to find out if somebody met criteria for for depression over the last seven days which is kind of really the only way we can um we can determine that. Um, but what, what was more interesting, I think, was um, the broad strokes of, of what kids and, and their caregivers were reporting. And, um, you know, most kids um, feeling like things were worse for them in terms of their mental health during the pandemic than before. And, um, you know, kids having, you know, a, a significant subset of kids having a really hard time accessing mental health support. And, that subset having a harder go of it than kids who found it easier to access mental health support. So I think those were some important findings. What, um, in your experience, are the barriers to accessing mental health support in Saskatchewan? I know that's a humongous question, but what are what are some of the most prevalent ones, let's say? Yeah, well, I'll try not to launch into a whole diatribe on the... Please, diatribe away. <laughs> Well, you know, I think just like um, uh, we're, we're so proud of like universal healthcare in this country, but there's actually really nothing universal about our healthcare system. And it's sort of bizarre, you know, what as a society we've decided to publicly fund and, and what we have not. So I, I think that's the first barrier is that, um, you know, there, there are small pockets of publicly funded mental health care available, but but otherwise, you know, to, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible and ironic that it's free to see your doctor and get a prescription for an antidepressant, but it's much harder to treat depression um, in a publicly funded way um, through a, a psychologist or, or other kind of therapist. Um, so I think um, we just need to really expand the access of, of publicly funded mental health care um, to start off with. Um, and, you know, there's um, child psychiatrists are, are, are pretty rare breeds, actually. Um, there's not that many of us. And uh, that's, that's really a problem, actually, like, across the across North America, um, that there's just not enough um, people in this field. And so um, we certainly Why do you think that might be? Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's incomprehensible to me because I, I love my job. I, I think like why wouldn't everybody want to do this? Um, I think um, you know it's it's sort of a, a doubly marginalized or stigmatized population we work with. You know, you're dealing with mental illness and and kids, um, so maybe it gets it gets overlooked. Um, hmm. You know, I will never complain about um, the pay I receive. I, I'm, I feel very well uh, remunerated for the work that I do. But when you sort of put us in the ranking of other types of specialists, psychiatrists are are paid much less than the kinds of doctors that do procedures that 
cut or sew or you know do these other kinds of things mm -hmm. um that might play a role into it i think there's also just sort of internalized um mental health stigma you know that like um i was told by different preceptors in med school like you're so smart why would you want to go into psychiatry you know um so i think even within really? medicine there's yeah there, there's um and and i mean that that was many years ago now so I, I would hope that those kinds of comments aren't being made anymore um but uh yeah you know i think there's just lots of work that can that can go into really encouraging people to go into this kind of work so are there places you can think of that are doing mental health care really well? Are there any like countries or maybe even just organizations in Canada or Saskatchewan that's really just doing a great job? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of um, any particular country um, or organization sort of off the top of my head. Um, I know like, for instance, um, Iceland had this really famous, they were kind of a case study that um, they were able to reduce their uh, youth substance use rates by kind of really focusing on um, extracurricular and leisure activity, you know, making sure that kids had lots of other alternatives um, other than using drugs to, to spend their time. Um, so that's, that's sort of like a more famous example of, um, I guess, more of an upstream approach. Um, there's lots of amazing sort of local organizations with boots on the ground. Sorry to use that term. What up, uh, what up, what up. <laughs> that are that are just doing um, really excellent work in terms of supporting marginalized kids. But um, yeah, I don't, I can't think of anyone that's just like really nailed it in terms of like, yeah, we we got a case. Um, I think there's room for improvement everywhere. I mean, I feel like it's also a thing that's impossible to get right fully. There's always a different way or a new way or a growing understanding or whatever. So I don't know if it, it, it'd be hard to give a clear answer for sure, for sure. Yeah, I think the um, other really important thing about like mental health is it's um, it's really about the social determinants of health. Um, mm. And it's, it's so it's so much broader and more upstream than just psychiatry or or mental health, you know, like if, if we had, um, you know, better interventions for childhood poverty, and social services and, and education, and, um, you know, that would, that would really help my work out, I, I would see fewer patients. Um, if, if, do you think yeah. part of the process of that may involve getting more doctors seated at those tables, so they can communicate? the impact that those decisions have on health? Yeah, I, I think other people um, are, there's other professions that are also really well equipped to talk about that. But but I do mm. think that would be an important ingredient um, is, yeah, having more physician leadership at the table. You know, I know, um, I mean, that's a, that's been a more recent concern with the um, uh, SHA, um, you know, kind of restructuring that's happening. But when it was initially mm -hmm. formed, it was actually set out as an explicit goal that at each level of leadership, that there was sort of this dyad, that there was a, a non-physician and a physician kind of sharing those different roles of, of leadership. And I think that was a really important mm -hmm. recognition of that contribution they could bring. And so has that dyad sort of fallen by the wayside now? 
Um, I don't think it's necessarily fallen by the wayside, but I think as we've seen, you know, more departures from the SHA board and, th- you know, like there's actually no longer a, a, a physician, I don't think that sits on that board. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, seeing sort of more high profile departures of, of physicians who had significant leadership roles, I think each time you have a departure like that, it obviously erodes the the role of physicians. That makes that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you see things going now after the pandemic? What are the next steps? Where, where does sort of healthcare in this province partially, but also just healthcare, mental healthcare for children and youth? Where do you see it going next? Where do you see the next steps in our sort of journey in Saskatchewan and Canada? Yeah, that's a that's a million dollar question. Um, I don't know. I think um, I mean, there's obviously no aspect of health that the pandemic has not affected. Um, and you know, if you were talking to a surgeon, um, I, I have no idea how they're going to tackle those surgical backlogs that um, you know that that we faced because of how out of control our fourth wave got you know we were Mm. we were already so so backlogged and um and and now to be so much further behind you know my my heart really goes out to all of those people waiting for for their procedure and i think um i hate the the term elective in surgery you know i think um it's really such a misnomer elective makes it sound like a cosmetic nose job or something like that you know elective just means Mm -hmm. um a surgery that is planned out ahead of time, right? That may mm. will likely not kill you in the next few months, but they're really important procedures that that people are are waiting on. So um, that's obviously not within my wheelhouse, but I think that's just a really good example of how much digging out there is going to be. How do you feel about the um, proposed solution of private surgery clinics? picking up some of that slack. I, I think it's just a really cosmetic solution that is actually not going to, to deal with, with um, the real underlying problem. I think um, the problem with private surgery clinics and the reason that everyone points to them as being um, more efficient or more cost effective is that they can really sort of cherry pick um, the easiest and most straightforward cases um, and and churn them through. So so they certainly play a role, you know, like they can do a, a zillion cataract procedures in a day. But the problem is, is that um, all of the more complex and expensive types of cases and procedures are going to be left um, up to the public system to deal with. So, you know, if you have multiple comorbid illnesses or you need a really specialized team of people to do your procedure or, you know, you are very young or you are um, very overweight or, you know, any number of things that make a procedure more complicated. um, You're not going to be eligible for, for those kinds of procedures in a private clinic. And so it's really misleading to compare those stats um, in terms of, the cost effectiveness of procedures and and even a very straightforward procedure done in a private clinic if you end up with a complication afterwards guess who's dealing with that it's not the private clinic it's the public system again 
So, um, you know, I think we need to be creative in our solutions, but I, I don't see privatization being a part of that. Do you think that the die is sort of cast and, and it's just going to happen? Or do you think there's still a way that we can advocate to avoid that going down that road? I'd like to think that the die is not cast. I think, um, you know, I, in the last few months, I've just seen a real groundswell of people who previously were not really super active in, in politics or, or healthcare advocacy, just really um, having their eyes opened, I guess, to the, the possible ramifications of these kinds of policy directions. Um, so, I mean, really, I think ultimately it's going to be up to the will of the people and, and um, what their priorities are, um, what kinds of politicians they elect, what kind of grassroots organizing um, can happen. Um, but if this is something that concerns you, I think um, we're going to have to to fight for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll ask you then to weigh in. There's a lot of political upheaval in Saskatchewan right now. Um, there's talk of a political part, a new political party. There's all manner of talk of new leaders. What's your take? Where do you, where do you feel this is all going? Are you as conflicted about this whole thing as I am? Yeah, I, I have no idea what the right path forward is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a bit of a know-it-all maybe in some areas, but this is one area where I, I'm really out of my lane. I, I, I think, um, it's, uh, it, it's a really interesting time. It feels sort of very pivotal in, in our province, um, despite what some uh, trolls would like to really label me as. I am, I'm not an NDP insider or anything by, by any stretch of the imagination. I have no idea what, what goes on in there. Folks um, do love to declare your views for you, don't they? Yeah. Well, and it's just it's so interesting that um, any perceived criticism of, of the government in power means that you're obviously some like paid troll for the other guy. It's, it's just like a weird, weird thing. Yeah. They, they always think there's a paid troll farm. It's like, I, I would love to get paid for yelling at you on Twitter. Right? I know. And like <laughs> this big pharma money I'm supposed to have access to, like, where's my check? You know, it's, uh, it's wild. The amount, I guess maybe like we're the suckers, like maybe some people are getting paid and we're, we're just missing out. Clearly that's the problem. We just need to talk about oil and gas more and the phone calls will start coming. That's in, right. Man. Yeah. Get on the phone with Pfizer. And... <laughs> um, do you have any sort of other words of wisdom as a child and youth psychiatrist that you could offer to um, sort of two groups? And I'll ask about them separately. What would you say? Cause I know there's a fair number of younger folks who listen to my content, what would you say to them going forward? What would be some advice you'd give for them about their mental health or about the world they're wandering into? Yeah, I, I have so much respect for, for youth. And I think like Gen Z is just going to save us one day. We're, we're a lost cause, but I think kids um, and, you know, generation alpha or whatever comes after them. I think, um, you know, these are, these are scary times, but kids are, are so smart and compassionate and savvy. Um, 
you know, I, I think we are in good hands with them. I hope we don't screw things up too badly for them before they take over. Um, so, so yeah, I, um, I think make your voices heard. Um, I think they, they have sort of this unprecedented way of, um, organizing and, and communicating that I think will serve them really well. That's you're a hundred percent right. They are as a generation, just like so compassionate and so open-minded and just a lot of good things. Yeah. Um, what would be the advice that you would give to parents or caregivers trying to support these folks as they grow up? I kids, um, kids need to, they need love. They need unconditional love. Um, they need our support and they need our ear. Um, so I, I think that's, I mean, the number one thing that, that we can do for our kids. And I think, um, I think we can take advocacy onto it, you know, it, on a really personal level, you don't have to be a, a physician or a, a, a TikTok star to be a really great advocate. You, um, you know, like if, if you see concerns, you know, if you don't think that your child is getting the right uh, supports in their classroom, like don't yell at the school, you know, like write your letters to your politicians and your, your ministers of, of education. I think um, one thing that we see is that all of these, you know, it's artificially so siloed, right? Like all of these, all of these things are, are connected. And, and I see that, you know, when cuts to education happen, that affects my patient's mental health or, you know, same thing with, with social services or, or justice and policing. So I think mm -hmm. um, we just really need to, um, to support our kids on an individual connection level, but also just, um, you know, advocate at those higher levels too. Absolutely. Well, uh, Tamara, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate your time. And I'm sure my listeners do too. Um, this was really, really informative and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. That was fun. Thanks.